You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Page 950, and it's titled The Light of the World. Jesus spoke to them again. I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not valid. Even if I testify about myself, Jesus replied, my testimony is true because I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you don't know where I came from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I judge by no one. And if I do judge, my judgment is true because it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who who sent me. Even in your law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am the one who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. Then they asked him, Where is your father? You know neither me nor my father, Jesus answered. If you knew me, you would also know my father. He spoke these words by the treasury while teaching in the temple, but no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. All right. Hey, you know, the um, Smith family's been around here a little while now, kind of locals now. We, when we got here, I was, I was 30 years old, and uh, tomorrow I'm going to be 42, which means we're, uh, we've... Wow. Applause. We've been around Caroline Springs for a little while, and um, it was a long time ago, but I distinctly remember our first night here living in Caroline Springs, and it's burned into my memory because of what happened that night. So we had moved over from Doncaster, moved into the church house a couple of k's down the road from here, and uh, got, got it all in, in, a, in the day we retired into bed, exhausted. India had just turned a year old, and um, so she was tucked in, and we kind of collapsed into bed. And then at about three o'clock in the morning, Renee was woken up by this very distinctive beeping noise. It was beep, 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 beep. And so she wakes up for anything. She woke up and shook me, and I woke up just in time to hear the loudest, most shrill, cacophonous alarm I'd ever heard. I didn't even know the church house had an alarm, but it was going off in the middle of the night, and we just panicked. We were already nervous about moving from the east side of Melbourne to the west. We were kind of expecting at any moment that we would be murdered in our sleep. And so, well, I was like up and out of bed. And you know when you've, you're sleeping somewhere the, for the first time and you wake up, you have no idea where you are? That was happening. Um, I didn't know where any of the light switches were, so I couldn't even turn on the lights. I also have, um, I think scientifically verified, I have the worst sense of direction of anyone alive today. So I was just going in circle. I, no, I didn't know what was going on. India obviously woke up and was crying, and so we were in a bit of a pickle. And all I could think of was, this, our neighbours are going to hate us forever. 
Um, and so I didn't know what to do. I, didn't, I had no idea what the code was for the alarm. I didn't even know where the code panel was for the alarm. Um, and so uh, I just walked around, bumped into some stuff, went downstairs to where um, the front door was and fell uh, down the stairs, smacked my face into the wall that was halfway down the stairs and then stumbled outside to my car and drove up here to the church because I knew that Linton, who planted the church, had written this manual, like this phone book manual. Uh, the thing's still howling, um, came up here, walked into this place, and then heard the exact same beeps and realised that I didn't know what the code was for this alarm. I this alarm started cranking as well. And I'm just stumbling around in the chaos thinking, what have we done? Um, anyway. I made my way down to the office, I found this manual, I found the code for this church alarm quickly, put that in, and then poured over this thing and found the alarm for the house. I didn't call Renee and tell her what the code was so she could turn it off, I just got in my car and drove home. I don't know why, I was, I was so flustered that, um, anyway, turn it off. And uh, I do remember at some point later on completely dismantling that alarm. Chaos. That was our first night in Caroline Springs. Just darkness and chaos. The, 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 the world that John is writing this gospel into, the Greco-Roman world, this is their understanding of really the universe. That the universe itself is darkness and chaos. And in the midst of darkness and chaos... They have this idea, the, the Greeks, that there is a governing force, a, a force of reason and intelligence, a governing force that brings order into chaos. And they call this force the word, the logos in Greek, the logos. And so John knows this, and he knows that for his audience that he's writing this gospel to, this gospel that we're traveling through through Easter, he knows that most of the people that are going to read this gospel are probably going to be Greeks and Romans. And so he writes to them in a way that he hopes they will understand, and he uses their philosophy, he uses their understanding of the universe to explain who Jesus is. And he says, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of darkness, you've got it right. There is a logos. There is a word that brings order to chaos. And so he begins his gospel by explaining who that is. He puts a face to it. So in chapter one of his gospel, first words of the Bible, he says, in the beginning. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. He introduces Jesus 
as that great mysterious force of reason that they'd always known but didn't know personally. He says that force, that creating force, that stabilizing force, that force that is really at the helm of all history, that force is Jesus. The word became flesh. God with us. He echoes the creation story that his Jewish readers would have known. He echoes Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis 1, it it describes how, how out of chaos came this reasonable order and rhythm. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, it says. Now the earth was formless and empty. It was chaotic. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. God saw the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. John says something that Jews and Greeks know about the world. In fact, we all know it as well. We know that the world can be a chaotic place. It can be a place of darkness. There are seasons of life where we are reminded that we're not in control. We, despite our best efforts to create order in the midst of chaos, sometimes the chaos breaks in. We saw this, didn't we, with the earthquake recently in Turkey and Syria? Utter chaos and darkness. The lights that we create go out when that kind of chaos breaks in. Devastation and death reign. We see it in every broken relationship where there was order and harmony in relationship. Now there is darkness and chaos and sometimes nobody knows the right way up anymore. See it in the midst of war, every war there's ever been, and there have been wars just about the whole time that we've been on the face of this planet. War is chaos, war is darkness. If you find a soldier who has served, who is willing to speak to you about it, and there aren't many, then their stories will be of darkness and chaos. And this world can be a dark place, it can be a place of chaos. Where sin is prevalent, chaos reigns. The Old Testament prophets knew this. The Old Testament prophets knew that though there was order in the beginning, that through human sin, the world had plunged into darkness and chaos. You find all through the prophets, both major and minor prophets, will speak about this predicament that Israel find themselves on. They are God's chosen people, meant to be a light to the nations, and yet they live themselves in the midst of darkness. Blind, leading the blind. You find this in the prophet Isaiah. In chapter 59, he talks about, he sort of paints this vivid picture of what it's like among God's people at this time. He says, these people, the people of God themselves, not just the pagans out there, but we ourselves, their their feet run after evil and they rush to shed innocent blood. 
Their thoughts are sinful thoughts. Ruin and wretchedness are their plans. They have not known the path of peace. And there is no justice in their ways. They have made their roads crooked. No one who walks on them will know peace. He goes on. Therefore, justice is far from us. And righteousness does not reach us. We hope for light. But there is darkness. For brightness. But we live in the night. We grope along a wall like the blind. We grope like those without eyes. We stumble at noon as though it were were twilight. We are like the dead among those who are healthy. Graphic description of a people who have wandered away from the light of God. Have no way back to him. And yet, all through the devastating denunciations of these prophets, you have points where they speak of a time that's to come, a time when God will deliver on his promises, a time where he will reach down and take them by the hand and lead them to the light. These are the messianic prophecies of the old covenant. Prophet Isaiah, again, this is what he says a little earlier in chapter 9. He says, People walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. This was a prophecy about that day when God will deliver on his promise. The day when God will send his Messiah King, his Christ, his anointed one, the one who would bring the light, not only to the people of Israel, but to be a light to the the nations, to the cosmos. This is their great hope, and they held on to it, even in the midst of this ravishing darkness. So we jump ahead now to the first century. And in the first century, you find God's people in a similar state. Here now, they're under the oppression of the Romans and they're groping and grappling for some kind of hope from God. Some of them are very, very zealous for God's glory, like the Pharisees, very zealous that if we can just keep the law, if we can just be pure, if we can just leave behind our, the idolatry of our forefathers, then God's kingdom will come. Then his Messiah will bring the light that we so desperately need. Midst of that milieu, you have a new prophet. And John, the gospel writer, speaks to us about this new prophet. He's also called John, John the baptizer. He tells us in his gospel, In the first chapter of John, he says, There was a man sent from God, that's a prophet, a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So John comes, just like Isaiah did, he comes to prophesy about the light of the Messiah, the anointed one, Christ, 
That man was Jesus. And he came not long after John's prophecy. Jesus knew his mission. And he knew that some would receive him. And some would reject him. If you were to predict before all of this who would receive the Messiah, the anointed one, the first on the list would have been the Pharisees. They were the ones that were desperately seeking for God's anointed one to come. They knew the old covenant scriptures better than anybody else. And they knew and, 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 and remembered what Isaiah, among others, Micah, just about all of the Old, old Testament prophets had said about this coming King, and yet, tragically, we see here in our passage that it's them who reject him. It's those who are most unlikely who receive him. Jesus said himself about this in John chapter 3. He says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. So we come to our passage. Let me read the first verse. Verse 12. Jesus spoke to them again, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light life. And we did a little bit of ancient Greek last week. We talked about the two different types of life, remember, in the Greek language. You've got bios, which is flesh and blood, and you've got zoe, which is like quality of life, like this is, this is the life. And when Jesus talks about him being the one who gives eternal life. That's the kind of life he talks about. When he talks later in chapter 10, which we'll get to, I think, in a couple of weeks, he talks about giving us, coming so that we might have abundant life. That's the kind of life he's talking about, zoe life. And here in this passage, he's, he talks about two, two Greek words you need to know. One you already know. The other one is a new one, but we use it in our own language. I even asked my kids about this yesterday, and they knew it, so you should as well. When he says, I am the light of the world, the Greek word is cosmos. I am the light of the world. I'm the light of the cosmos. Not just this place that we call home, but the entire universe. Cosmos means both the universe, universes in all of their eternal length and breadth, but also the whole world in terms of every human that lives on it. I'm the light of the world, not just for these people of Israel and not just for these zealous people of Israel, not just for a small slice of the population, but I am the light of the entire world. I am the light to the nations, as the Old Testament prophets put it. I'm the light of the world, anyone who follows me, anyone, that's why it's anyone, because I'm the light for the entire cosmos, it therefore follows that anyone from the greatest high priest to the filthiest prostitute, anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of Zoe life. 
That's his promise. This is what we're seeing here. We are witnessing the accomplishment of God's eternal plan of salvation. This is the Messiah. This is the light of the world. And he comes proclaiming it. This is a massive claim. We've been asking the question, who is Jesus? John writes this whole gospel asking this question. And he has witnesses lined up, beginning with John and all the way through. We're going to get to witnesses later on. He has these witnesses testifying to who Jesus is. And as the chief witness, the star witness, he has Jesus himself over and over and over again saying, I am. And yet sometimes we scramble around wondering who is Jesus and we sort of make him in our own image. We have different types of Jesus depending on our political um, predilections or our personalities or whatever it is. We need to know that if you have a kind of bent towards seeing Jesus as the unassuming hippie Jesus, you need to come to terms with this kind of claim. He's not an unassuming guy. He just said that he is the light of the world. That's quite a statement. It's quite a statement. I am the light of the world. I am the Messiah. I am God's gift to humanity. I am the answer to all of your chaotic, dark, evil problems. I am the light. The Pharisees know exactly what he's saying, right? They're the ones that are primed to to read exactly what he means. And they are under no illusions. They say in verse 13, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not valid. They knew the law very, very well. And according to the law, they're right. You need at least two or three witnesses to prove any kind of statement, particularly one like that. To prove the veracity of a statement, the truth of a statement, you need at least two, preferably three. And so they say, you're saying this about yourself? This isn't valid. You need more than one. Jesus says, you don't get it. Verse 14 to 18, even if I testify about myself, Jesus replied, my testimony is true because I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards, I judge no one. And if I do judge, my judgment is true because it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am the one who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. That's two. I've got God the Father and God the Son. I don't know if you've ever had to go to court before, but that's a couple of witnesses you probably want on your side. God the Father and God the Son. Not an unassuming claim. Not a model. Jesus is saying, I am God. Towards the end of this passage, we won't get there. I think it's verse 20 or verse 19 where he says that pretty much, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
John says it wasn't his time to be killed yet, but you get the feeling that the Pharisees would have been all too eager to put an end to this guy. They know that he's a blasphemer unless he's speaking the truth. I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. I want you to hear this, brothers and sisters. It's about as complicated as it gets this morning. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I am the promised Messiah, he says. Jesus created the light in the beginning. Nothing that was made was not made through him. In the beginning, he was the one who said, let there be light. And he brought order in the midst of chaos. And to this day, he continues to bring light into the midst of darkness. The question is, will you respond? In the midst of your own darkness and chaos, in the midst of this world that is at war with itself, will you see the light and see it as a beacon of hope? Will you see it as the, 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 the lights of home that represent welcome and comfort and security and refuge? Will you see the light and walk towards it? Or will you spend all of your time bumping around, groping for some kind of semblance of order? Stuffing yourself with all kinds of medications to stave off the anxiety that comes from living in a place of chaos. The first Christians understood this truth and they embraced it. They were desperate to be delivered from chaos. What about you? The first Christians wrote beautifully about this truth. Let me read a couple of passages for you. In First of all, with Peter, if his first letter in chapter 2, he says, You are a chosen race, brothers and sisters, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. It's not a harsh light. It's not a, it's not a, a supermarket light. It's a warm light. It's the light of home. It's the light of, of the hearth. God has called you into his marvelous light. And the Apostle Paul picks up on this as well. In Colossians chapter 1, he says, He, God, has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And he goes on in Ephesians in chapter 5, he says, you, all of you, all of us were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness and truth, 
testing what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. That's your life of ministry. That's your life of renewal. To bring, to both to be light, you are now light in the Lord, and to expose darkness. All of that is wonderful and beautiful and true. And I want you to embrace it. But if we're honest, I think all of us know that there are seasons in our life where we dwell in darkness. Whole seasons of our life and then periods throughout each day when we redemptive light and we go back to darkness. We regress. You were once darkness, he says. Well, sometimes we go back to where we began. I mean, don't we? There's something within us, within our flesh, that likes the darkness because, as Jesus said, it covers us. It hides us. I want to share with you the story of someone who went to just about the darkest place he could go before he saw the light. I want to tell you the story of Johnny Cash. I love Johnny Cash. I was fortunate. My, my, grew up, my dad loved some really good artists like, like uh, Jim Reeves and Roy Orbison and Johnny Cash. And so I just, I, 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 know I love his music. I also love him as a man. I love his story. So I want to read for you and just encourage you to stay with me as I read this story about something he went through, something that doesn't make it into the movies about him but was very um, profound in his own life and his own faith. So, Johnny Cash took his first amphetamine pill in 1957. He was instantly hooked. In his own words, it increased my energy, it sharpened my wit, it banished my shyness, it improved my timing, it turned me on like electricity flowing through a light bulb. For the next 10 years, Cash was addicted to pills. Reflecting on this, he said, every pill I took was an attempt to regain the wonderful, natural feeling of euphoria I experienced the first time. Not a single one of them, not even one among many thousands that slowly tore me away from my family, my God and myself ever worked. It was never as great as the first time, no matter how hard I tried to make it so. And so in 1967, a decade after his first pill, after spending time in and out of jail and hospital, he decided to end his life. I never wanted to see another dawn, he said. I had wasted my life. I had drifted so far away from God and every stabilizing force in my life that I felt there was no hope for me. So with a plan in place, Cash made his way to Nickajack Cave on the Tennessee River. Nickajack is part of this enormous system of caves that are 
Some, some caves are like bigger than the MCG under the mountains. And not too long after this, they were flooded to make a huge lake reservoir. They run under the mountains all the way from Tennessee all through to Alabama. And Cash knew that several people had lost their lives in the caves across the years, usually by entering and getting lost and losing their way. It was my hope and intention to join that company, he said. His plan was to crawl in so far that he would never find his way out and no one would be able to locate him until long after he was dead. He parked his jeep, entered the cave, and crawled for nearly three hours until his torch batteries died. Exhausted, he lay down in total darkness. Later, he recalled, the absolute lack of light was as far from God as I had ever been. My separation from him, the deepest and most ravaging of all the various kinds of loneliness I'd felt over the years, seemed finally complete. As he lay in the darkness waiting for death, Cash discovered a profound truth about God. I thought and left me. He began to feel something powerful taking place in his mind and body. He described it as a sensation of utter peace, clarity and sobriety. The feeling of tranquility persisted and Cash began to focus on God. There in Nickajack Cave, I became conscious of a very clear, simple idea. I was not in charge of my destiny. I was not in charge of my own death. I was going to die at God's time, not mine. I hadn't prayed over my decision to seek death in the cave, but that didn't stop God from intervening. Feeling the stirring of new hope, Cash found himself in a predicament. He was in total darkness, with no idea which way was up or down, in or out of the maze of tunnels and caves. Deep inside the earth, there was no scent, light, or sensation from the outside to guide him. He wondered to himself, how can I escape from the death I've willed? His answer came in an intuitive urging to simply begin moving. So, he recalled, I started crawling, feeling ahead with my hands to guard against plunging over some precipice, just moving slowly and calmly, crab-like. Eventually, Cash felt a gentle, soft breeze and knew that the direction the breeze was flowing from would lead to the way out. Slowly, methodically, he followed the breeze until he began to see light. So the question is for us this morning, are you wandering around in darkness? Are you scrounging around in the pitch black? Have you forgotten what it's like to be guided by the light of the world? 
Do you feel defeated by your own stupidity and sin? Are you facing the same conundrum? How are you meant to get out of the death that you'd willed for yourself? You need to hear the words of another Old Testament prophet from Micah in chapter 7. Make this your prayer. Make this your resolution. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will stand up. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Now you know something that Micah didn't know. You know the face of the light. You know the person. You know him personally. And if you don't, then you can. You can this morning. You can come to the light of the world. You can come out of the darkness of depression and chaos and sin and doom. You can find your way to the light because the light is already shining before you. He's the light of the world. And his promise is that all who follow him will never walk in darkness. Elsewhere in chapter 12 of John, you need to hear him say this. Hear him say this and respond. He says, I have come as light into the world so that everyone, everyone, everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness. You need not remain there. I'm going to make an invitation to you now to step out of darkness, to come to the light. We're going to sit and reflect on what Jesus has said about himself. Forget about Johnny Cash for a minute. Forget about the things that I've said. Just once again, hear the words of Jesus. I am the light of the world. I want you to think about that as we sing. Just remain seated. But if you want to come to the light, or if you want, to, if you want someone to pray with you and, and thereby kind of hold your hand and lead you to the light, then just come down the front here. I have a few people who love leading people to the light who will pray with you. And God's promises have all of their yes and amen in Jesus himself. So you can trust him. He's not going to lead you astray. All right, let's do that now. And I'll pray for us to close. Father, we thank you that you didn't leave us in chaos and darkness, but sent Jesus to be the light of the world. May we come to him now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.